I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it has been. My personal superpower, if there's like one thing that I think I'm really good at, I'm super curious. And, you know, people can write, write, write all they want, but what are people doing? And if there's anybody that's out there doing, they know how hard it is to actually do. One of the reasons that I understood the vision that I had is because I studied perfume. I really wanted to be a perfumer. I studied pastry and um, art, and I knew there were cows nearby. Because, see, I'm a comic who became an actor, so I'm cheap. Like, you know, back in the day, like, you could only do one thing. One thing. This is Polymathic by 2 p.m. Today, we have Jack Carlson, the founder and CEO of Rowing Blazers, one of my favorite brands. Um, He's here today to talk about his experience academically, professionally, socially, and otherwise. Um, He's a man about town. I've watched him for a few years now climb his way uh, atop the fashion totem pole. And um, we're going to start at the very beginning to understand a little bit about who the man is and how he's become who he is today. You're too nice. Thank you for that intro. You're welcome. You're welcome. So let's take it from the beginning. Jack, where are you from? Uh, I don't tell many people this. Not many people know this. <laughs> okay. But I was actually born in New Jersey. I was born in Summit, New Jersey, just out the, outside the city. Uh, I don't remember much of my time there because when I was very, very little, my family moved to London, uh, spent a couple years in London, and then moved to Boston. I basically grew up in Boston, and I consider myself to be from Boston. So... Uh, you're getting a little inside scoop, a little nugget okay. of information not many people know. I get that. I'm not very proud of being from Houston, Texas either. So <laughs> I'm not saying I'm not proud. There's probably some uh there's probably a good number of uh New Jersey listeners on here. But sure. it's just a tidbit that doesn't make its way to the surface too often. But I'm a I'm a Boston guy basically. It's really interesting to see the places that define us, right? Like I would say that living in Austin, Texas defined me more so than living in Houston, Texas defined me, and that's sort of the context by what I meant. Um, but that's great. So summit, New Jersey, you lived in London, you moved back to Boston. Um, well, it's funny. Like you talk about the places that define you. I mean, I only lived in London for two years when I was a very little kid. Like I basically, I went to like first, second grade. I, or I, I, you know, I was there through second grade basically. Um, but it's definitely had an outsized impact on my life. I returned to England for grad school. I still spent a ton of time there. I still have friends there, even from when I was in first and second grade that I'm in touch with very regularly. So what about your experience in first and second grade do you remember, if anything? Man, I mean, uh, in some ways it was like, at least in my memory, it was like a children's book about London. It's like I did all the things like, you know rode around in double-decker buses and, like, went to Harrods and uh, saw Big Ben and walked along the Thames with my mom. And uh, it was, like, the kind of, like, Babar in London, you know, uh, version of life. It was very kind of idealized sort of, you know, children's children's book version of life in London. And uh, I think it planted a lot of seeds with me pretty early on. I mean, uh, it... One thing that definitely made me interested in was the study of symbols, the study of heraldry, which is, you know, which is 
basically the study of coats of arms, which is something that's reverberated throughout my life in my academic studies and even today with with the brand. Uh, I remember like, you know, drawing little coats of arms and making one up for myself because you see the royal coat of arms, you know, everywhere. At the time, it was on the side of Herod's. You buy, uh, you know, a tin of biscuits and it's on there. You buy Tropicana orange juice and there's a little royal coat of arms on there that says, you know, royal warrant, suppliers of orange drinks to Her Majesty the Queen. That's amazing. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's the little things like that that kind of stick with you. And then it's some bigger things like the friends that you make that you keep in touch with. Yeah. So moving back to Boston, moving back stateside, living in Boston, um, how was that transition for you? Where did you find the heraldry in Boston? Because I'm sure that you were looking for it. Yeah, you know, I mean, I kept in touch with that kind of British side of my upbringing. Um, I was very fortunate, you know, uh, I had the opportunity to travel back there a lot when I was in middle school and high school and continue to spend a lot of time in England. But you know, I feel like it's kind of something about my personality that I always sort of lean into what is archetypal or what it, what is quintessential about a place. And so when I moved to Boston, when my family moved to Boston, you know, I was like all about the Red Sox within like five minutes of landing there, you know, and I started playing Little League Baseball. I went from playing like rugby and cricket, you know, it's like a little, little kid in England to like I was all about baseball and I like couldn't get enough and and uh you know it's all about uh kind of like embracing almost kind of like the idealized rose tinted glasses of a thing or of a place wherever you are wherever I am and I think that's something about me generally too I mean it's not something I think about on the regular but even as I'm talking through this right now it's something that I'm almost like realizing about myself like I always try to embrace like whatever is really classic, whatever is like quintessential, whatever is archetypal about uh, about a place, about an institution, about a type of clothing, whatever it might be. Define what that means for New York today. Man, for New York today, I mean, I think you have things that are the the sort of old school classics like – you know, I mean, I can just give you some examples would, like, be like Bemelman's, you know, sure. is like an iconic old school New York place. I mean, it literally is associated with like children's literature, but it's like those kind of places that you would read about in like a little kid's book about going to New York, like Babar in New York. You know, that's kind of the lens almost through which I look at a place. But it goes beyond, like, if you read Babar in New York, it's like New York is just the Upper East Side, basically, and Central <laughs> Park. You know what I mean? But I I try to seek out those places and those kind of institutions. And institutions, to my mind, having a very broad definition, you know, in kind of many different areas or many different kind of walks of life. So, like, Nomwa Tea Parlor is just as much of an institution. And both those examples are fairly old, but... Things don't have to necessarily be super old to be to be institutions or to be iconic in some way, uh, and they don't necessarily need to be fancy to be institutions or to, or to be iconic in some way. There, there's no easy way to put it into words. Like, how do you define something as being iconic or being an institution or being archetypal or being a classic? But you know it when you see it. Right. It's I've, like I've, a, I've seen you. 
I've seen you discuss delis as much as I've seen you discuss, you know, um, establishments where you will host a black tie event, right? Well, that's the beauty of it all. I mean, you know, I spent most of the day today sitting in my de facto conference room, which is Landmark Coffee Shop, which is across the street from our store. I mean, it is one of the last of the true old school kind of New York diners. It's not nice. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not even like, in some ways, like it's not even charming in terms of how in some ways like kind of run down it is. It's like the only places that you could find that even remotely look like that would be like doing it on purpose as kind of a kitschy kind of thing. They're not doing it as a kitschy thing. Like it's actually like, it just is. It just is. Yeah. I mean, it's like the Formica is coming off of the tables. There's posters that are like half falling off the walls. You know, that just is what it is. But, you know, later I'm going to like a very fancy club on the Upper East Side. And it's like you can do both those things in a day. And they're both in some ways kind of like iconic classic experiences. Like, I mean, another way of almost thinking about it is like they could both be settings for some kind of movie. They could both be – that's just kind of how I like to live my life. But you're absolutely right. I mean, I talk about diners all the time. It's not a – it's not like a thing of like – high, low, whatever. It's, it's like, uh, yeah, there's no easy way of putting it in words. It's like, I think it was Supreme court justice Potter Stewart said about pornography, right? It's like, he can't give you a definition, but he knows it when he sees it. <laughs> well said. So Boston, uh, you were there, uh, your early childhood, elementary school, middle school, I'm assuming high school as well. Yes, sir. Uh, when did you start pursuing, uh, rowing full time? Yeah, I started in uh, seventh grade, and uh, I was going to a school. I was going to uh, a new school uh, in Cambridge, Mass, right on the banks of the Charles River. And uh, what was the school? Uh, the school's name? BBNN, Buckingham Brown and Nichols. BBNN, okay. for lack of a better way of putting it, at least when I was there, it's like the one urban co-ed day school. In the in this kind of New England league of private high schools, where everyone else is either a boarding school or a single sex school or both, um, and I learned later as a teacher at one of our rival schools that everyone thought of us, which is such a joke, but everyone thought of us as being like a really hood school. It's really funny because I which can, we were not, by the way. I'm sure you weren't. Uh, I can relate because my wife is the athletic director. Of a of a preparatory school that is, by all accounts, probably the most uh, substantially diverse school in the entire city of Columbus. Um, which is funny because it's it's one of the four schools in the city that are insanely expensive. So you're talking well, obviously things are different in New York than they are in Ohio, but you're talking. You know, twenty three, twenty four, twenty five thousand dollars a year, which in Ohio for a day school is a lot of money, for sure. Yeah. So uh, the uh, I can see the kids interacting sometimes on Twitter with the other schools and the things that you're talking about now that they couldn't really say over social media it didn't exist back then. You actually see that those types of interactions between schools now. Yeah, it's bad. It's rude. I mean, but it's there's an irony to it. I mean. 
you know, the school where I went to high school, starting in seventh grade, actually, junior high and high school, uh, you know, was essentially a school that was set up for the kids of Harvard Harvard faculty. And it's by no means is it like, uh, you know, like it's a very expensive, you know, whatever, like fancy kind of school. But we don't have the big you know, gothic buildings and brick buildings and the rolling meadows and the whatever. It's very much an urban campus. It definitely has that vibe to it. It's a very diverse place. Uh, And it's co-ed and it's a day school. So that was kind of the rep that it got. But they had a rowing. They had a rowing program, which, as you know, I'm sure most high schools don't have rowing programs, although the sport is growing in a very positive way, actually. But, uh, yeah, I remember I think it was actually on my – my interview, because of course you have to interview to go to the school. Uh, and one of the teachers was like, well, you know, you have to do sports. What sport are you going to do? And of, of course, at that time, I would have been in sixth grade interviewing. I was like, baseball, 100%. And she was like, yeah, you know, baseball is like not really, we have a baseball team, but like, do you ever think about crew? And I had no idea even what that was. I was like, crew. <laughs> I was like laughing. I was like, I was like, well, what is that? You know? And she's like, oh, you're in like a long skinny boat, with a bunch of other guys. You're like, you know, hauling on the oars. And I was like, <laughs> no way. No. I was like, is that, are you for real? Is that a real sport? And she was like, yeah. She was like, you've never seen it. You never heard of crew. I was like, no, it doesn't sound like it's for me though. Uh, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be on your baseball team. And then of course I went there and it's like all my friends are rowing. All my teachers are like the rowing coaches. Everyone's like, yeah, oh, you got to try rowing. It's like, it's the thing you do. And, uh, you know, I, I submitted the peer pressure. I tried it and, uh, I stayed in the sport for about 20 years. That's amazing. So you started rowing in sixth grade, seventh grade, yeah. seventh grade. Um, going back to the past a little, a little bit, how did you not run into rowing culture or at least observe it when you were in London? Is it not prevalent there? You know, keep in mind, I was a very little kid when we were living in London. Uh, It definitely is a lot more prevalent and a lot better followed than it is here. I think in all of the kind of Commonwealth countries and in Europe, it's a lot, it's a lot more well known. But, uh, you know, I guess I was sort of vaguely aware of like the Oxford Cambridge boat race. Um, but as a sport that kind of exists outside of that, no, I hadn't really run into it. And, uh, you know, the other thing, too, is like both my parents, my parents don't really come from this kind of world at all. New England and London and Where are they from? boarding schools, whatever. They're both from Detroit. Okay. And people are always like, oh, like uh, Gross Point or like, oh, Birmingham or like, like, no, Detroit. It's like, no, they're from Detroit, Detroit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. Like, uh, oh, oh. <laughs> oh, Indian Village? No. Nope. Just Detroit. Um, you know, and I think uh, my dad was the first in his family to go to college. Um, they, you know, neither of my parents really experienced much outside of Detroit growing up. Right. You know, and uh, they they moved out east. They lived in Boston for a little bit. They lived in New York for a little bit. Um, you know, but they were not like it's not like they had an upbringing where like they probably knew what rowing was. Right. You know? Right. It's amazing it's, how that can happen so fast for, for generations. Sure. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So going into high school, uh, was that your de facto sport at that point? Yeah. You know, I've always, and to this day, uh, loved tennis, 
as okay. well. And I pulled a move a couple times in high school. Obviously, tennis and rowing are both the same season, the spring season, where uh, if if I would just get fed up or like if I didn't feel like the coach was like respecting what I was doing, I would just quit and go join the tennis team for like a week. And eventually the coach would always say, hey, you know what? We could really use you back at the rowing team. And, uh, you know, if you if you need to like miss this day to go to a family event or whatever, you know, I'm not going to give you a lot of grief. And, uh, you know, yeah, we all know that you should be like in the top boat. So, you know, we, we don't have to go through all this rigmarole. And uh, I would kind of get the upper hand, you know. It's sure. kind of like saying it now. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's kind of like a little jerk way to do it but you know it gave me definitely sort of like a little more of the upper hand sure. when i would come back onto the team whatever but i always enjoyed my week of playing tennis it was a practical education and gaining leverage for sure um but yeah rowing was definitely my sport okay so uh what does it look like when you row in high school and you're looking for colleges so here's a little context on my end um, in Ohio, let's say, let's say we're talking about Ohio state, they are actively looking for rowers. So you can play any sport on the face of the planet. If you are an athlete and they feel like you have the capacity to row, they will give you a full ride to go to Ohio state to row. That's true for women. That same, uh, logic doesn't apply for men. Of course not. I'm just, I'm wondering. Yeah. So what does that look like? for you rowing is such a bizarre sport and it's so there are so many facets that uh are not that easy to to explain that in that straightforward of a manner but uh rowing is very different also on the men's and women's side in the u.s and in the collegiate landscape in the u.s basically on the women's side it's what you're talking about almost every major university in the country has a varsity uh women's rowing program they use it um, to fulfill their Title IX obligations. So they use it to balance their expenditure on men's sport uh, with women's because it's a sport where there's no fixed rosters and that's very expensive to pursue. The equipment is very expensive. The travel is very expensive. And you can have a huge team all on scholarship. So Ohio State is one of the best women's rowing programs in the world. Um, and has no men's varsity rowing program at all, actually. Uh, and that is a relatively recent phenomenon, but it's a cool thing that's happening. My girlfriend rode at UVA and in some ways was a beneficiary of this situation that Title IX has created. And shout out to her, Keziah Bell. She won two NCAA titles while she was at UVA, which is one of the hardest things. I think it's like yeah, it's one of the hardest competitions, men's, women's, you know, domestic world championship, Olympic level to win the U.S. NCAA women's national title because literally everybody, every university is doing it. Every university is pouring money into it. Um, then on the men's side, it's actually very different. On the men's side, it is still a sport that is very much associated with uh the very traditional programs. So that's basically the Ivy League plus it's like the Ivies plus Georgetown, Navy, Syracuse, uh, 
and of course on the West Coast, Washington, Stanford. Cal, and Stanford. Um, and being a junior or a high school rower in the U.S. Uh, as a guy is not uh, an easy proposition because those few that that small number of schools that I just mentioned, I guess plus BU, there's a few others in there. Most of their spots are going to kids who grew up rowing in Great Britain, Australia, Germany, New Zealand, South Africa, uh, Croatia, Italy. Um, and there are very, very few spots for the U.S. So put it in perspective, I think in the final of the men's national championship in rowing, which would be there's six boats in the final, there are nine athletes in each boat. I think there were something like two Americans. What? This was either last year or the year before. Two in that entire field. In that entire field. Almost 60 kids uh, competing in the final Five for, for the Americans. American Collegiate National Championship for men's rowing. I think there's like two American athletes. So it's a pretty it's a pretty bleak landscape. I basically, when I was in high school and started to look at it, I decided from pretty Early on, I wanted to continue rowing in college, but I was not going to pick my college based on rowing, Uh, and I wasn't really going to use rowing to get into college. I was in a fortunate position. I did very well in high school. I didn't need that to give me a a boost, and, you know, it ended up basically what it came down to was I was looking at, and I had gotten into Georgetown, Princeton— Cornell, UVA, and USC, and those were like, those, uh, and Williams, those were the schools that, you know, that I really liked, that I applied to, that I, and I got in on my own merit. I used rowing to actually be able to like get invited back and spend the night at some of these campuses and like get a little more feel for it. At the time, I was recruited by the Cornell Lightweight Rowing Team. They were, I think, triple back-to-back national champions. Princeton was, uh you know, national champions for heavyweight men, which I was getting recruited to. Um, and uh, in the end, I decided to go to Georgetown just because academically, socially, it just felt like a better fit. I just liked the vibe there more. And uh, and I'm glad I did. So did you, obviously, you ended up rowing at Georgetown or you didn't? No, I did. Yeah, did. yeah, yeah, I did. And, and to also just finesse it, I mean, I'm the coxswain. I'm the guy steering the boat, making the calls. Um, you know, it's, it's a little different from being like one of the actual oarsmen in the boat. It's like being the jockey. It's a very weird and very unique role in the whole world of sport. But yeah, I I was four years, uh, at Georgetown. I was the captain of the team my senior year. What was the hardest part of being a coxswain? I'm assuming you're going to say, uh, weight maintenance. You know, the weight maintenance really became a big, big challenge later in my career when I was on the national team uh, in, you know, and as I got older and as my metabolism slowed down. When I was in college, that was no problem at all. You know, when I was in college, it's not really a challenge of that comes with being a coxswain, but, uh, you know, I took a very large course load at Georgetown. I was, I did Chinese language. I did French. I did uh econ and I did classics. So I had a lot going on and I did not sleep very much in college. And I also say like, I didn't have that much of a social life in college. 
it was like, you know, it's a classic thing they say, like academics, athletics, social life, you know, pick two at the most, you know, and that was me. What's the process by which you balanced your academic pursuits and your athletic pursuits after that? So I knew I wanted to go to grad school. I had uh, spent a couple summers at Georgetown or when I was a student at Georgetown uh, doing archaeological digs. I basically just watched too much Indiana Jones when I was a kid growing up and planted the seed uh, that uh, I wanted to be an archaeologist. And I kind of directed my studies at Georgetown in such a way to open that door for me for after graduation. So I was in the School of Foreign Service, which at Georgetown was originally uh, kind of created as almost like a West Point, but for diplomats. We are a program that has been educating international leaders for almost 100 years. We know our students are going to face a world of dramatic change, and our job is to get them ready to excel in the face of it. And, you know, a, a very large chunk of the U.S. Foreign Service comes from the Georgetown SFS every year. A lot of people go into the CIA. A lot of people uh, do it in tandem with ROTC and become military officers and so on. Um, and I sort of uh, skewed that uh, that curriculum to enable me to basically go into uh, to an archaeology program based around both the sort of classical Mediterranean and ancient China. Um, so I did, I also did classical Chinese when I was at Georgetown. I did all kinds of stuff. Um, but I knew I wanted to go to grad school. The other thing though, is I knew I wanted to keep rowing. So I was basically looking at only three grad schools, uh, Stanford, Cambridge, and Oxford. And at Cambridge and Oxford, I knew my experience, uh, in terms of athletics and, and socially as well would be totally different from if I went to Stanford, you know. I think going to grad school in America, I have so much respect for people who do it because it does seem like uh, it doesn't seem like that generally happy or exciting of an existence. It seems like a lot of library time, which, of course, I got in Oxford as well, which is where I ended up going. But uh, at Oxford, I actually, you know, one, I was able to progress in the sport. I was able to to you know, be part of the team that does Oxford Cambridge boat race. I went to another training center in the UK, um, that basically helped me to get onto my first national team. Uh, even though it was a U.S. national team, I was able to keep progressing and getting better in the sport. And I'll be totally honest. I mean, I, I definitely spent more time on rowing related stuff when I was in grad school than I did on academic, you know, academically. Was that a, things. Was, was that a problem for you academically? Not at all, actually. It's funny you know, people people in the U.S. have a very different approach to uh, athletics in colleges than they do in England. Like, n- athletics cannot help you to get into Oxford at all, not, not even a little bit. It actually can only hurt you. So, and the reason for that is at Oxford, they aren't looking for a well-rounded you know, person, they aren't looking like Harvard does of like, oh, we need a new, like the classic examples, like, oh, we need a new coxswain for the, for the rowing team. This guy fits the bill. Oh, we need a new trombone for the, you know, yeah, for the band. Like this guy fits the bill. Not at all. The application, there's no admissions department. It's just read by 
the professors who are going to be teaching you. And believe me, the professors do not want to deal with you if you're going to be running off to practice, whether that's for a musical instrument or a sport. Sure. And they all know for sure the sport that takes up the most time, the sport that is taken the most seriously is is rowing, especially at Oxford. So it was a big change, actually, like going from Georgetown where, you know, the basketball team are the big men on campus. If you're on the rowing team, it's like, who cares? <laughs> At Oxford, it's like everyone knows who's on the rowing team. You're like, you know, going out, going into a nightclub or whatever. It's like that velvet rope's right, you know, right open for you. Everyone knows who you are. They couldn't care at all who's on the basketball team at Oxford. You know, I didn't but, even know Oxford had a basketball team. They do, they do. It's a, it's a bunch of road scholars, and they're they're terrible. <laughs> but uh, but it's fine. I had friends on the team. Like I went to a couple games. It was fun. It was fun. But I was probably the only person watching. But it was fun. Um, it's amazing. But the other thing is like when I was at the rowing team on the rowing team at Georgetown, my professors would be like, "Oh, that's great. Do you have a race this weekend? Like, oh, maybe like uh, you know, my partner and I will come watch the race. Like, oh, you guys are racing Navy. Cool, come watch." Like, good luck this weekend. At Oxford, it's like, do not talk to your professors about sport. Do not talk to them about rowing. Try to have them not know you're on the rowing team. And uh, I successfully did this with uh, – I basically su- successfully did this my first year. I had a very serious and, and excellent advisor, Dame Jessica Rawson, who is one of the probably most imposing academic figures at Oxford. And that's saying a lot. She was the warden of Merton College the top college academically at Oxford for many, many years. Um, Many would say she ruled that place with an iron fist. Um, If you were not cutting the mustard academically, arrangements would be made for you to leave and to maybe go to a different college within Oxford. But um, uh, she, and there was no case, not like I was hiding or lying that I was on the rowing team, but certainly didn't go out of my way to advertise the fact or to, discuss it with her and there's no need to whenever we're talking we're talking about chinese archaeology but uh the oxford cambridge race is televised of course so uh that that kind of blew my cover but actually she ended up having like way more respect for me because you know she was kind of like you've been doing all this training the whole time and actually i didn't even know it like i didn't notice that it was affecting your academic work and uh and then i could be kind of open about it with her basically. That's amazing. But it's a very different complexion in the UK than in the US for sure. Interesting. So <clears throat> you're at Oxford for grad school? I was there for initially a two year master's degree. I was uh I was all set to come back after my two years and uh I was gonna be a high school teacher uh and and high school rowing coach here. And I got an offer. I got a scholarship, basically, um, to stay at Oxford and to do a PhD. At Oxford, they call it a DPhil because they just have to do everything a little differently. Um, <laughs> so philosophy, I'm assuming. Uh, no, in archaeology, in okay. archaeology, okay. as well. Yeah, and uh, but it's, I mean, it's a, it's a PhD, but it's in archaeology, and it was too good of an offer to, uh, to pass up, and so I ended up staying for another three and a half years, basically. So I was there for five and a half years. Wow. At Oxford. How often did you come home? Pretty often. I mean, I spent most of the summers, I was uh, either tr- 
trying out for or on the U.S. rowing team. I spent almost every summer, all summer, uh, in the U.S. doing some some kind of rowing. Um, and, uh, yeah, when I started working on the book Rowing Blazers, um, I would come to New York to uh, to do some work on that. I was pretty, you know, I was pretty mobile. It was a very charmed life. I mean, I was being paid to study archaeology. Um, you know, you have Europe right there on your doorstep. It's very easy to go on a quick trip to Paris or even to go to a quick trip to Morocco or South Africa or Turkey or wherever. And uh, and I would come back to the U.S. a lot as well. So was that your first or your second book, Rowing Blazers? It was kind of my first real book. I mean, I wrote a book about heraldry for children. How long ago? Very nerdy. I did it when I was in high school. Okay. You wrote a book in high school. I actually wrote in eighth grade. Yeah, it's a little bit before high school. It was very, yeah, I mean, and that book, uh, in some ways I'm very embarrassed of it because, of course, you're always embarrassed of, you know, work you did when you were like a little kid before you like knew better and knew about this and knew about that. But uh, the book is probably still the best book about the study of coats of arms for children, you know. Um it's a very kind of obscure subject, but, you know, in a way you think about it like when you're studying knights, when you're studying the Middle Ages, when you're in high school or in middle school or in elementary school, you know, you, there'll be a part where it's like learn about, oh, coats of arms, maybe design your own coat of arms. And there was really nothing out there that was at all like correct to teach kids about this. And it's a very colorful subject. It's the kind of thing that you know, I think like nerdy kids like me probably love to learn about. So I just kind of took it upon myself to, uh, to write a book about this. Did you, is it still available? It's still available. Yeah. I mean, it actually sells, sell a lot of copies. of it. <laughs> That's insane. It's crazy actually. Um, uh, well, yeah, it's, it's on Amazon. It's, it's at the Met museum. You can buy it in the gift shop in the Met. Um, and, uh, a place that I worked for a little while is basically an intern, the College of Arms in London, which is this funky place. It's a UK government uh, institution that designs coats of arms for people and for organizations, and it still exists today. It's a uh, – yeah, it's one of those British little parts of the British government that somehow still exists. And I, I basically – I intern there, um, and they have – like you can go visit it. Uh, and they have like a little gift shop. It's there. It's basically just there. It's in the Met Museum. It's probably in a few other museums around. Um, and uh, yeah. How do you get a book published that you write in eighth grade? I took it to the College of Arms, actually. The British College of Arms is a little-known and little-used genealogical resource for American genealogists. Yet, it has one of the richest collections of British genealogical records available, with some of them being primary source family trees begun 600 years ago or more. Uh, and I met one of the heralds there. That's what they're called, the officers who work there. And I think when I first met him, we've become good friends since, but, uh, you know, he definitely was not expecting much. And then I kind of showed him like the manuscript and the drawings. And he was like, actually, this is pretty good. And he, he kind of helped, uh, to, to get it published and turn it into a book. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I was, I was a nerd, man. I was a really nerd. It's, it's amazing. I, I, you know, I have a 12 year old daughter who is creative like that. She's very capable of doing 
a lot of what you've discussed in your childhood, in early adulthood. Um, and so I watch her now and I just think to myself, what would she write about that she would publish? You know, I, I, I legitimately wonder about that now because she's so capable of doing a lot of that stuff. And, um, it's really fascinating. I don't think it's nerdy at all. I think it's just being a curious person. And ironically, you know, one of the subjects of this podcast, one of the themes is becoming a deep generalist, right? Um, hundred percent. I mean, I relate to that in a major, major way. And, you know, I would constantly have these sort of internal crises of like, you know, should I actually be way more folks? Should I just forget this PhD and just uh, move to the training center and uh, and be just full time on rowing? Should I give up this whole rowing malarkey and be going to way more academic conferences and writing way more papers? Um, you know, and it's like, and a million other things competing with that. I was writing a coffee table book, Rowing Blazers, when I was when I was in England too. Like, hey, maybe this, maybe I should just be way more focused on this. Somehow, I mean, somehow I just have taken the approach that like, if you're really passionate enough about something, you'll find a way to get it done and it might not get done as quickly as you would like it to. But if, if you are passionate about it and, uh, you know, and, and you're good at it in some way or you work hard at it, it will, it will probably happen eventually probably not as quickly as you want you also have to have the aptitude for it and let's be honest i mean there's you've listed a a laundry list of of accomplishments that if the average person achieved one of them they would be extremely happy so uh, you know that's one of the reasons why you're here right now breaking down how the timeline is is it's almost unrealistic yeah, like I said, I mean, I would have these sort of internal crises all the time and, and nothing happened as quickly as I wanted it to, you know. Um, you know, and in some ways I'm like, man, I can't believe I was at Oxford for uh, five and a half years. That's a long time to be in a bubble, to be somewhere that's like its own bubble, sure. you know. But – and every every year that I was there, and I still do this every year, I'm like, man, I didn't get as nearly as much done this year as I kind of wanted to. And then you kind of remember like this, you know, this would always happen to me, especially when I was living in England, I'd be like, man, I'm getting to the end of the year. I'm getting to the end of 2013 or whatever it is. And like this, this darn book still is not published rowing blazers. But then I'd be like, okay, but like I actually won Henley and like won the head of the Charles this year. I'd be like, ah, but damn it. But my thesis isn't done yet. And it's just kind of like, I don't know. It's just, ju- you know, keeping those balls in the air and, uh, and you know, I guess just not taking on too, too much. And I think being a little bit like kind of never really satisfied helps sure a lot as well. I think if I had actually been part of the rowing team at Princeton or Cornell, if I'd gone there and we had like won a national championship – I kind of doubt I actually would have been like, all right, I need to go to Oxford or Cambridge so I can keep pursuing the sport. And I probably would have never been on the national team. It was a lack like, of satisfaction. I went, to, I went to Georgetown and we were okay. Like, you know, we weren't bad, but we didn't win any national titles or anything like that. Like, you know, kept me kept me hungry a little bit. It's really interesting. It's a, certainly a, an important component to 
pursuing different fields, different disciplines, you know? I want to move on beyond Oxford. So you graduate <clears throat> with your DPhil, PhD in American terms, and you come back home. You are still rowing. Are you still in school after that? Do you go back to school for any other reason? Well, actually, I stopped. I, uh, I had been on the national team for the 2011 and 2014 World Championships, and then in between there, 2013 and 2014, uh, uh, one Henley, one the head of the Charles, one Canadian Henley. These are like big races that are outside of the World Championships. It's like Wimbledon and the Australian Open. It's kind of like the equivalents. Sure. Um, and then I retired, actually. I, I A lot of things happened at once. At the end of 2014, the book came out, uh, launched it at Ralph Lauren. I, I handed in my DPhil right before Christmas, and I decided I was retiring from the sport. And I moved back to Massachusetts, and I became a classics teacher and rowing coach at St. Mark's in uh, Southboro, one of the rival schools <laughs> from where I went to high school that thought that we were like kind of hood in their parlance. Um, and that was a weird few months of my life, actually. I have a quick story about that. <laughs> The American Meat Institute presents The Life of Riley, a half hour with radio's friendliest family. And starring William Bendix as Riley. I came to St. Mark's where I was teaching halfway through the year, halfway through, through the school year, right after winter break. Basically, I started. And uh, literally, well, it was like being dropped onto a foreign planet. Like I had just come from Oxford in some ways living the life of Riley. I'll be honest, like traveling a ton. I think I had just gone to like South Africa. I'd gone to like a friend's wedding in Dubai. I'd been to like Argentina all over the place. And my book had just come out with like book parties at the Ralph Lauren stores on Bond street and in New York on the fifth Avenue store, RIP, which no longer exists. And then boom, I'm in Massachusetts. There's like seven feet of snow and uh, I'm teaching kids and I'm coaching kids. And uh, to boot on my fourth day, one of the like one of the really promising athletes on the rowing team, this kid who's on a full scholarship at St. Mark's. And I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know who anybody is. I don't know how to navigate this school, anything. I'm like... I'm almost like that uh, starry-eyed, fresh-faced young teacher that's like just gotten his PhD from Oxford and is so idealistic about everything and like, oh, I'm going to change these kids' lives through rowing and through the classics. <laughs> and uh, this kid, he's like, oh, Mr. Carlson, uh, can I talk to you? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, there's some problem with uh, this form that I didn't fill out properly to go on our training trip for rowing of course this is a very fancy school so they have a, a training trip to florida for rowing you go to orlando florida which we didn't have because we right. were the co-ed day school. bus yeah. trip flight what uh the kids all fly and i drive the like 60 foot long trailer with the boats down from south bro to uh, orlando in a straight shot which is over 24 hours oh um, sleeping in some parking lots and stuff, but, uh, but I don't even know, like, 
much about this trip or how things work, but he's like, yeah, I didn't file this form right, so uh, the financial aid director says I can't go on the trip. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll sort this out for you. It sounds like it's just some kind of administrative thing. And uh, I email the financial aid director. I'm like, hey, I was just talking to this guy, and, uh, you know, it's obviously he's one of our star athletes on the rowing team. He says he, like, maybe didn't get his form filled out in time or something. Uh, you know, obviously there's some time before the spring training trip at this point. But I'm like, I'm sure it's just a misunderstanding, but let me know how we can figure this out. And I get this email back that's just like, it's something like, the form was due two days ago. He's late. He's not going. Wow. And it's basically like if you're on a full ride to the school, you get a full ride for the training trip. That's how it works. You know, if you're on 50% scholarship, you get 50% for the for whatever athletics trips or chorus trips or whatever it is. That was basically the policy of the school. So I'm like, wow, okay. All right, I got to go talk to this guy in person. And I go to his office. And I'm like, again, just like big smile on my face, just putting it on, even though I'm like, I don't know what this guy's problem is, but big smile on my face, you know, I'm there, I'm in my like tweed jacket. I'm like looking the part of like this boarding school teacher, you know, put out my hand. I'm like, Hey, it's such a pleasure to meet you. I think we just got off on the wrong foot there over email. Anyway, I'm really excited about talking to you, you know, about meeting you and talking through this thing and figuring it out. And he literally looks at my hand and refuses to shake it. I've never met this guy before. I've only had one email back and forth with this guy. And we're standing at the, at the doorway to his office. And he just points at a chair in his office and he just goes, sit. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? I'm like, I cannot take this. So I just go, listen, man, I've come in here putting my best foot forward, reaching out my hand to shake yours, to try to figure this thing out so that a kid, a kid, a high school student can go on maybe a life-changing training trip with a rowing team. And you talk to me like literally a dog. I was like, I will not stand for that. And there is no conversation to be had here. And I turned around and uh, that was my first enemy that I made. And it sounds like something from a movie of like, why would there be someone who's trying to deprive a kid of an opportunity over some kind of administrative or bureaucratic error. But it seems like a like a storyline from like Dead Poet Society, to be honest. Sadly, these things are not only in fiction. And Did it work out? Eventually, basically, I talked to the other coaches and we all agreed to share a room, which opened up a little bit of room for the in the budget, basically. And uh the athletics department found like a few bucks from their budget and we were able to make it work with no help from this guy who was the financial aid director. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was just like, so was this, that was just like a big bucket of cold water over me. You know, it sounds like it was shades of Oxford, to be honest with you. Like they, a, a person that didn't value someone's athletic contributions to the institution almost despised the person for their athletic contributions to the institution. I mean, you know, the thing is like, you never know what like a person's going through as people say, but there were definitely some, some big, there were definitely just some personal issues that were just affecting and sucks 
that it would affect like a kid, you know? Right. Um, luckily we got it worked out, but that was, uh, you know, it was kind of like, I'm not in Kansas anymore. We must be over the rainbow. I, I found the whole thing to be, uh, you know, in some ways a very rewarding experience. I just did that one half year of teaching and coaching and I was out in the coaching launch one day in May and I got a phone call from the coach of the lightweight national team. And he was like, Hey, uh, I, uh, I'm calling to see if you want to come back onto the national team. (laughs) Keep in mind, I had been eating school lunches, school dinners. The way that I would kind of like get a little headspace to myself was to go off campus. What was off campus right next door? Five guys. I was no longer coxswain sized. I was no longer in any kind of shape to be pursuing any kind of sport, let alone at the national team level. And I said to the guy, I said to the coach, I was like, you know, I'm retired, right? And he's like, yeah, no, I know. I know. I know. (laughs) I was like, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not, I'm not at weight. And he's like, I had heard that. (laughs) And I'm not telling him where I am or how bad it is, but he's like, "Uh, here's the thing. Do you think you can get to weight within three months by the world championships? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. Having no idea if it's possible. I'm just like, yeah, I think so. I was probably 175, 176. You have to get down to 130? Uh, 115. 115. You have to be 121 for the race day, but you want to be a little below that so you can drink up and then piss it away before your race. So how do you lose 60 pounds in three months, Jack? Man, you know what? I'm actually like, it was a crazy summer, but it gave me in some ways kind of a whole new lease on life. Like there were a lot of things like that that happened when I was a teacher, like that little anecdote I just told that were in some ways kind of depressing. Most of the teachers were older than me or at least mentally older than me. And, of course, the kids are like kids. So it was in some ways kind of a lonely, kind of depressing existence being a teacher there. I I mean, I still loved it in many ways. And there are so many nice people there, so many people who helped me out in so many ways. But I was in a tough place mentally, and I was so glad that I got that call. And I was more than happy to go lose like the 60 pounds or whatever I had to. It was probably good for my health. I mean, it was good for my health until it started being bad for my health. I mean, right. that's like way too light. Most coxswains at the international level are like 5'3", 5'2", 5'4", somewhere in there. You know, I was, I'm like 5'9", 5'10". So you got to be real skinny. By the time you're like 30 years old, you got to be real skinny and it's real tough on your body to be 115. Uh I actually got to 111. I can't conceptualize that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically just many, many hours every day on the bike and not really eating very much at all. It's not something I recommend to any uh, listeners out there. It's not something I endorse. It's probably could get me in trouble for suggesting that. But uh, but I did it. And um, I did it. And it was a great experience. It was my best finish at a world championships uh, with a bronze medal. I met my now girlfriend that summer as well um and it was just a it was a totally wild experience and totally different from uh from teaching coaching also totally different from being at oxford so uh, a little bit of the history that i do know of you um you started flirting with the idea of building a brand around the time that you left the school 
Yeah, actually, while I was at the school, I came down here to New York on uh, the first week of spring break was like actual spring break. The kids have spring break. Teachers have spring break. The second week was when all the sports training trips happen. So I came down to New York for the first week of spring break and through a friend, good friend, George Carr, who had worked at Ralph and, and at Calvin and a few other places, uh, veteran of the apparel industry. He knew that I kind of had this idea of starting a brand, Rowing Blazers. He also knew that I had no idea what I was doing. And he was like, let me give you some names of people you should talk to. I have no idea if these people can or will want to help you, but like you should meet them. It'll at least be a place to start. And I probably met with 25 people in like four days. It was I, And I had no idea about even the geography of New York. I would be scheduling back-to-back meetings in like Tribeca and the Upper East Side and then my next meetings in like Dumbo and the next ones on the Upper West Side. And I was just like this crazy kid running around New York and taking the subway up and down and uh, wearing my Oxford rowing blazer. So I looked apart. And uh, the very last person I met was a crazy dude named David Rosenzweig who uh, had been president of Sony Riquel. He started menswear at Perry Ellis in the 80s when Perry Ellis was like a huge deal. He's like a Studio 54 veteran, total nutcase. Studio 54 was Sodom and Gomorrah with a disco beat. A place where celebrities and civilians alike reveled in unrestrained debauchery. Everything was going on in full swing, drag, sex, and rock and roll. He had read my book like eight times. He was like quoting it back to me. And he was like, we have to do this, man. He had been maybe a little bit involved or knew the people involved with starting the Tommy Bahama brand. And he was like, this is the best thing I've seen since then. I was like, you know, it's a little different from that. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like they're making a lot of money. He's like, we should do this. We should do this. And I was like, all right, well, listen, man, I'm a teacher at a boarding school right now. I'm about to drive 24 hours from Southboro, Mass to Orlando, Florida. Let's revisit this topic in June. I'm glad you're so enthusiastic. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And uh, we'll just kind of keep in touch. uh, And and maybe we'll talk again in June. But again, I'm going to be on a training trip. I'm in charge of like 48 kids. Please, uh, like, don't call me in the next f- couple weeks, at least, please. 24 hours later, I'm like on the road hauling these boats and he's calling me. I'm like, David. <laughs> he's like, Jack, I have so many ideas. Uh, I, I know where we can get the fabric. I have all these ideas about ways that we can market this. You know, we should do it more like drops. We should do it more like streetwear. I'm like, okay, whoa, whoa. I'm like, do you remember the part where I said like, maybe don't call me? <laughs> And like, let's just touch base again in a few months. He's like, I know, but I'm so excited. And it's basically just been that ever since, ever since. And after that year, uh, after that summer uh, of being on the national team and kind of working, starting to work with David on this, well, both when I was at the school and then the summer being on the national team, I got invited to the Olympic Training Center, kept working with David on it. It was kind of like an hour a day type thing. And then maybe like one day a week where we'd work on it for a few hours. Like David would come to Princeton if I was training in Princeton. He'd come to Boston if I was training in Boston. Or we'd meet in our West Coast office, which was In-N-Out Burger in uh, Chula Vista, uh, right near the Olympic Training Center there. Um, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a wild experience. Uh, and I didn't make the 2016 Olympic team. Uh, my girlfriend and I moved to New York 
shortly after we found out that news and started. And then it was the three of us. It was me, Keziah, and David running around the city, following David like chickens with our heads cut off uh, and trying to make a go at this thing. And whatever it was, six, seven months later, uh, in May of 2017, we launched the brand. It's amazing. A little bit about the brand. How would you best describe it to someone that hasn't yet walked into your store? Rolling Blazers as a brand is all about the classics, but it's about presenting the classics in a way that's not stuffy, that's uh, not exclusive in the negative sense of that word, but rather that's very fun, very youthful, um, very relevant, I mean, for lack of a better term. Uh, How I describe the brand kind of in a nutshell really varies. Like if I'm talking to a fashion editor, it'll be one thing. If I'm talking to a friend, it'll be another thing. If I'm talking to you, which is a little bit more in, I don't know, almost like a business kind of context, like that's sort of what I would say. I mean, we've been called by other people. It's kind of like the preppy supreme. You know, there are ways of talking about it, uh, you know, in, in that context. Or it's like, you know, Brooks Brothers meets uh, meets Supreme or something like that. This is the way other people have kind of described it. Um, but for me, it's really about uh, – it's really about doing the classics in a very authentic way um, and in a way that is uh, – that makes sense for the 21st century. So for me, that's like – it's not – about doing like a huge wholesale business and then having like this markdowns and outlet business and releasing these big seasonal collections that you have to sell X percent at full price and X percent at whatever markdown and then it goes on clearance. Uh, It's not about having these huge kind of jewel in the crown trophy flagship stores all over the world. It's about being digital first. It's about it's about uh, releasing new product all the time. It's about not overproducing, which is what every almost every traditional clothing brand in the world overproduce. They pr- knowingly produce way more than they're ever going to sell. And they sell as much as they can. They mark the rest down, sell as much as they can, and, and maybe burn the rest or it ends up in TJ Maxx. Um, it's about actually taking a lot of the lessons, a lot of the philosophies from streetwear and from super successful brands. I mean, it's such a it's almost like a trite thing to cite Supreme at this point, but it's like taking a lot of the pages out of the book of a brand like that and yet applying it to rugby shirts, blazers, tweeds, seersucker, uh sweaters. Um, these things are a little more classic, a little more timeless. Another way of kind of thinking about it, the other brand that, of course, I look at all the time and that's a big inspiration is Ralph Lauren. Um, One thing that drives me nuts about Ralph Lauren is that it's almost part of the Ralph Lauren brand, so you can't, you know, you can't fault them for it, but just personally from my taste – is that it's almost intentionally not authentic. Like you buy a shirt that has like some coat of arms on it and it says like Ralph Lauren Rowing Club, 1931, first eight. It's like, (laughs) what is that? Who's wearing that? I mean, to me, it's almost that stuff is cool, but only ironically or almost only if you're doing kind of like a 90s throwback kind of thing. 
It's like nowadays the consumer is so educated. The consumer has Wikipedia, has Instagram, has the news right at their fingertips all the time. It's like – To your point, just last week they got zinged by I saw that. a black fraternity I saw that. for using their logos. I, I've been in – I've been in uh, – Ralph Lauren stores who I've walked in and there's the coat of arms of Brazenose College, which is, was my college at Oxford, with one tiny little thing different. And it's on a tie and it's on a shirt and it's on a polo and it's on a rugby. And I'm like, I'm sure the college has no idea that they're doing this. I'm sure that they have no idea what this is even from or what it's meaning. And it's on there and it says like, you know, uh, it's on there and it's saying like Black Watch uh, polo Club, Ralph Lauren, first rowing crew. What the hell is that? And it's like that kind of thing. It's kind of funny, but I think what people, what the educated consumer is much more into now are things that have meaning, are things that have authenticity, are things that connect back to something in the real world. So in a way, you position your consumer conversations with a basis of intelligence and appreciation and respect for the consumer. You assume that if they don't know what they're looking at, the education that you can provide them is one that's authentic. Whereas in some ways, it sounds like uh, Ralph and the team behind it right now are assuming that people don't know what they're looking at or what they're talking about. Yeah, or that this... It's basically like a pastiche, right? Or they'll think that like the pastiche will kind of just be good enough. And I think that's fine. And I think that's a lot easier. Well, for one thing, that was an easier story to sell in the 80s and 90s when it's kind of like, oh, this like vaguely looks like something real. And yeah, I'll take it. People don't have the internet, their fingertips right away. You know, you might not be able to find or get the real thing quite so easily at this point and mad respect to Ralph Lauren. Like it's its own genre at this point. It's like, it can be a skull and crossbones with the coats of arms of Oxford and Cambridge on either side of it. And it can say like bleaker street rugby club, like, you know, 1932. And it's like, it's kind of like its own thing at this stage. It's not my flavor, but it's kind of its own thing at this stage. It's all, it's been around 50 years. It's its own genre. But the way I kind of approach it is sort of different. It's it's what you're saying. It's like, you know, I love this little bar in Paris, Harry's Bar. It's the oldest cocktail bar in Europe, Harry's New York Bar in Paris. Um, they invented the Bloody Mary. They invented the French 75. They invented the sidecar. Legendary bar. It's a, it's a, it's a local spot. It's a small place. And I love their logo, which is like two dancing barflies wearing top hats. It's a logo from, I don't know, 1911 or the 1920s or something like that. But I'm like, man, I love this logo. This would be like, it'd be cool to like do some merch with these guys. What I don't do is take that logo of the dancing barflies, tweak it, turn it into dancing uh, ants or spiders, and then say it's, uh, you know, Jack's Bar Paris or Ralph's Bar Paris. And kind of pastiche the actual Harry's Bar logo. No, what I do, and we have the luxury of doing this because we're small and we're nimble and it's just my approach to you things reach out anyway. To them. I reach out to them. You know, I get in touch with them and 
chat with the owner, uh, show him sort of what my concept is, let him know what my, you know, connection to the bar is not something I Googled. It's like, no, I've been there a bunch of times. It's like, I, I know about, I've learned about the history of this place. I want to do it in this kind of very respectful way. And we do it as a collaboration. We do it as a partnership. And that's that's my approach to a lot of this stuff. That's like a, just a little example. Well, I think it's really pertinent because if you look at the site, and obviously I spend a lot of time on the site, I'm not only, you know, uh, a proud investor, but I buy a lot of stuff from you. And so- We appreciate that, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, it's a collage of your life. In a lot of ways, you know, the, the references to archaeology, the references to those spots in European places that most people have never been to, the, the appreciation for Babar, the, all, all the things that you have taken and sort of built an amalgam of for, for this brand. I think that's what makes it truly unique and it's the authenticity that makes it work. In some ways, it reminds me of the things that hip hop teaches me. And I know this is a really weird segue. But, you know, when you're 19 years old and you hear Kanye West rap, rap about, uh, you know, Mason Martin Margiela, What's that jacket, Margiela, you don't know what that is until he says it. You don't even know how to spell it. You're typing in, I, I was that guy. Right. Typing in like, what is he saying? Like M-A-S-O-N? <laughs> right. Like, what is it? Mario something? Eh, I don't even know what that means. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. You, you, I, you know, there's that. There's, you know, it's when you're 24 and you, you're from Texas and you were in the middle class and you hear someone talk, rap about, uh, you know, uh, Lamborghini, Lamborghini Contosh, two of them. Like, what is that? I didn't even know that existed. Two of them. <laughs> you know, it's, that to me, what you're doing does that because they're, you know, for those, for those consumers that haven't been to Paris that don't know what the bar scene is like there, or they haven't been to this diner or they haven't been to this one room in this one club. Like you are, you are projecting that. And I think that there's, there's a value in that, that unfortunately to your point, uh, Ralph no longer does if he's if he's ever done it at all. I mean, look, I I have nothing but love and respect for Ralph Lauren. Um, the other way I almost kind of think about it though is like, you know, if Ralph was starting again today, or if they could take the huge Titanic ship that they've built, or the you know gigantic ship, and turn it on a dime, what would they do differently? You know, and it's like probably would be digital first. It probably would be more about telling these sort of organic stories, doing the marketing in a more organic way through collaborations, through creative projects, rather than huge produced campaigns and, and big billboards. It might be less about the huge flagship stores in, you know, Milan and in Paris and here, there and everyone having a whole huge mansion. Um, maybe not, but I suspect that there would be a lot more taken from the book, which didn't exist at the time, of a Supreme. Um, that's that's another way of thinking about, uh, yeah, kind of my approach to what we're doing. So it, here's sort of the ending question, because I tend to believe that unless you have a decent perspective on horizon of time for, for brand development, you're going to do something wrong. Um. I believe that traditional venture capital is not set out for 
these types of brands because the return on investment does not align with the time necessary to create these brands. So instead of seven years, you're probably going to need something like 10 to 15 or more. Who knows? Where do you see Rowing Blazers in 10 years? You know, I think if we play our cards right, I think Rowing Blazers will be a global brand in 10 years. Uh, I think it is possible to scale it to a global brand that is e-commerce first, that is primarily direct-to-consumer brand, which would enable us to keep telling our story our way. Um, and I think that it is possible to to scale a brand like this and to maintain authenticity. I mean, it's almost, again, it's like almost cliche or trite to, to cite Supreme, but I mean, it's so funny. Like most of my friends at Oxford uh, have no idea what Supreme is. You know, it's like once they sort of know what it is, then they see it everywhere. But Supreme is this incredible brand that has gotten to be gigantic. I mean, I'm talking huge, huge, huge. And it's kind of everywhere. And yet still maintains a mystique. It still maintains a sense of kind of like, if you know, you know. It still maintains that sense of organic underground approach to the way that it markets itself. Um, and I think if we can do that, uh, you know, half as well as, as Supreme has and to do it with, um, and to do it with the classics, then we will have done very, very well. Jack Carlson, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you, boys. Thank you.